Radio MD. RadioMD.com. Hear it from the doctor with expert guests from the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's Healthy Children. Now, our favorite mom, Melanie Cole, MS. Welcome to Healthy Children, where all of our expert guests are provided by the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm Melanie Cole, and joining me today is Dr. Andrew Garner. He's a pediatrician with Partners in Pediatrics in Westlake, Ohio, and he's a member of the UH Rainbow Care Network, the region's largest coordinated group of medical professionals providing care to children. And don't we love that? Dr. Garner, I just love that because providing care for children, it it would be the most important thing that we can do as parents, as doctors, any of those things. And you're here to tell us about something not so happy, really adverse childhood experiences. I'd like to start by asking you what that exactly is. What qualifies as an adverse childhood event? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, So I I think that uh, when you hear the word adverse childhood experiences are sometimes uh, abbreviated ACEs, in the medical literature, we tend to think about a specific study. And so these are thought of as traditional ACEs. So two doctors, Felidia and Anda, back in the 90s, looked at 10 different types of ACEs. They had three types of abuse, so physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, two types of neglect, physical and emotional neglect, and five measures of household dysfunction. So mental illness in the home, substance abuse in the home, intimate partner violence, separated family member. And so when when you talk about ACEs, that's what um, a lot of researchers tend to think of. But of course, we know there are many other types of adversity in childhood that kids can experience that, that also can impact a life course trajectory. And that's why this term ACEs gets thrown a lot around a lot, because that original study by Felitti and Anda, they came up with an ACE score. So you could get one point for each one of those different 10 categories that you experienced. Um, and what they found was a a statistically significant and graded dose response that the more adversity a child had prior to their 18th birthday, the worse they did down the line. And they looked at many different outcomes. So whether or not we're talking about mental illness in terms of depression and anxiety and, and suicidality, but also chronic diseases, things like asthma and cancer and diabetes and, and Alzheimer's. And so the interest in ACEs has grown dramatically over the last 20 years as we've started to understand that what happens in childhood doesn't stay in childhood. Now, if you ask people, there are many other things, again, that can, that can do that. They're also sometimes called adverse community experiences. So another kind of ACEs, community experiences. So things like being exposed to poverty, being exposed to racism, being exposed to violence, basically feeling like you're not included, being bullied. Um, those are also associated with adverse outcomes down the line. Now, let me be very clear, though, ACEs aren't destiny, right? So just because you've had a a tough going as a kid, that doesn't mean you're doomed to do poorly. Um, But we know there are strong associations there, and we need to understand the biology um, that links them so we can do a better job of helping kids be healthy. That was an excellent explanation. So our adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, are they different than childhood trauma? And is it important to understand this difference? Yeah. So, you know, um, so the, 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 the issue with trauma, um, and they're sometimes used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's, there's some controversy in the literature here. But, but I think the thing with trauma is we tend to focus a lot on the event, the precipitant itself. 
And I think that we have a hard time getting our hands around adversity in general when we're just looking at the event because we know it's very subjective, right? So, you know, one child to hear a dog barking and think, oh, puppy, let's play. Another is terrorized, right? And so some of that has to do with their previous experiences. But if we really want to start quantifying adversity and getting our hands around it and understanding the biology that's underlying it, we have to stop looking at the events and start looking at the responses, the biological response, right? And so that's where this idea of toxic stress comes in. So toxic stress refers to this ongoing exposure to the body's res biological response to adversity. And, and that's where we start getting into the biology, where we start understanding how those experiences then literally become biologically embedded and sort of change who we are at the molecular, cellular, and even behavioral levels. Again, we can change who we are. Um, that, again, doesn't mean it's destiny. Um, so I think there's a lot of overlap when we start thinking about trauma and adversity. And so it can get pretty confusing. But, but I think when you start thinking about what's the response to it, and then even more importantly, what we're learning is um, how do we repair, right? So, um, you know, toxic stress has sometimes been defined as the response in the absence uh, of safe, stable, nurturing relationships, the ability to turn off that stress response. Um, and so um, toxic stress sort of helps us understand the problem, helps us understand how adversity um, can change the way our DNA works, the way our brains function uh, and our behaviors, but it doesn't necessarily get us at some solutions. Uh, and that's the really good news is we're learning more and more about the biology of toxic stress. And what it's telling us is that that biology is also the same biology that underlies this idea of relational health, right? That if we're able to connect with adults who are engaged with us and support us and are nurturing us, that can turn off the stress response and that can actually help us become resilient, right? And and help us to uh, understand how to handle adversity in a healthy manner in the future. So, so toxic stress sort of defines the problem, but this idea of relational health really helps define the solution, right? At, at the individual level, but also what we do in families and what we do at a community and societal level, how we can help kids to thrive instead of focusing on all, all what's going wrong. It's certainly true, and Resilience is its own podcast, Dr. Garner. <laughs> so you'll join us again. We could talk about that. But, you know, I hear what you're saying. My 22-year-old my son said recently, he said, you're stressing me out. And your stress, I'm feeling it. And, yeah. and it's stressing me out. And, you know, I, I've been a mom now for quite a long time. And so I knew this, and I felt myself doing it. Our kids right now, Dr. Garner, are experiencing things that we did not. There is a pandemic. There is global warming and change. There's all of these things, political and arguments and families arguing on Facebook. I mean, there's social media and this worldwide feeling of stress and insecurity that's going on right now. Taking all of that into account... Then you mentioned things like poverty and food insecurity and all of these mental health issues that there's, you know, that the kids are going through because there's really a mental health crisis. So how do we know? Let's start right there. If our kids are experiencing what qualifies as an adverse childhood event, how do we know? Yeah, well, it can present many different ways, and part of that is a moving target in terms of where they're at developmentally, right? So uh, an infant or a toddler experiencing adversity is going to behave very differently than an adolescent, right? And so that makes it a little difficult. Um, but I think the thing that I would sort of say is at a very high 30-foot 
30,000 foot level is sort of emotional irritability, right? So that cuts across all dimensions. You know, when we're getting irritable, when we're getting emotional, um, I think as parents, our temptation is to focus on the behavior. You know, don't use that tone with me. <laughs> you know, you know, don't talk back to me. You know, why are you being this way? Stop doing this. Stop fighting with your sister. Stop throwing things. Stop having a tantrum. And I think what we really want to do is dig a little deeper and understand what those behaviors are telling us. We want to try, try and connect emotionally um, because I think that there's a lot of data suggests that that's really what's driving a lot of this stress is the sense that no one gets me, no one understands me, no one's got my back. So I, I think that's probably the most important thing is to start building uh, what some people will call emotional intelligence, um, which is that there's nothing wrong with strong emotions. It is okay to be scared. I mean, if you're not scared, bored, or frustrated right now, you're missing something, right? So that's okay. There's nothing wrong with the emotion. The challenge is that in a million different ways, we tell kids of all ages, you're not allowed to feel that way, which is really unhealthy. It's okay to be angry, frustrated, scared, disappointed, stressed. That's There's nothing wrong with that. You're not broken for feeling that way. The challenge is helping kids understand what to do with those emotions. Um, and that's where, again, having these safe, stable, nurturing relationships can play a, a big role in helping kids sort of identify their passions um, and know what to do with them. Because it's hard to feel stress and joy at the same time. <laughs> so in my practice, if I can uh, help kids identify the things they love to do, even at a young, young age, five or six years old, you know, boy, this kid loves to read. This kid loves to dance. This kid loves Legos. Fantastic. Now I have a hook that I can help them understand, you know, when you're feeling angry, when you're feeling jealous, when you're disappointed and frustrated, that's okay. Parents identify, label it, normalize it. It's okay to be that way. Um, but then this is what you do. You go play with those Legos, you go do some dancing, and now you feel better again. So now we're actually sort of teaching kids to cope with strong emotions and sort of just saying stop or you're not supposed to feel that way. Well, it is all about how we communicate with our kids, right? And how we, they communicate back with us. And for some parents, texting each other, even if you're in opposite rooms yeah. in the same house, is sometimes <laughs> a way. I mean, with my daughter, if I go into a room, you know, she might be like, okay, did you knock? Or I'm busy. Or But then the minute I step out, she'll text me a link to something. Or, you know, so there's these different levels now of communication. And I'd like you to tell parents where you would like them to bring in their pediatrician as we're learning to communicate. And my family, big Jewish family that we are, we talk about everything all the time. And so everything is right laid bare and out in the open. But not every parent knows how to start those discussions. When red flags go up, they're not sure what to say. They don't want to alienate or have the child run away from them saying, I don't want to talk about it now, which is really very common. So for parents, starting that discussion is sometimes the hardest part. Where and when do they bring in their beloved pediatrician and give us some words to help start those discussions so that we can catch those warning signs, Dr. Garner, because there is a crisis in this country. Well, there is. There is. Um, so there's a really famous um, psychiatrist in Texas named Bruce Perry who talks about a neurosequential model. What he says is that if someone's sort of being dysregulated and angry and frustrated and, and you're concerned about them, um, his mantra is regulate, relate, and then reason. 
And, and, and what that gets at is the fact that first we have to be in control of our own emotions <laughs> because, you know, the, like you said, there's, there's a lot Ain't of emotion. That's the truth. Yeah. There's a lot of emotionality here, you know, and when, and, and you mentioned the idea of texting as a way of communicating text can sort of, I mean, it can inflame, inflame things, but it also can sort of get the emotionality out of it too. Right. Because, you know, when we're face to face, um, there's a lot of emotionality, which can be either good or bad. Um, and so texting may be a way of getting rid of that. And so that may be a way of bringing down the emotion by using a text. Um, but, but the point is we have to regulate ourselves and that's hard because we're stressed. We're stressed about the pandemic. We're worried about our kid. We're worried about a million other things. And so that stress then comes across. And if we're not regulated, the kid's not going to be regulated. <laughs> and, and that's really important. Um, then he, so regulates the first thing and then relate. So if we're coming at a child with why isn't this getting done? Why isn't it, you know, that's probably not going to be heard as well as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm worried about you. I, I just want to help, you know, if you're you're doing okay and you got under control that's one thing um but what's going on because i noticed there's some changes and so you want to try and own it yourself not project and say you know the problems with you you know actually there's a there's a mantra in trauma-informed care that it's not what's wrong with you it's what's happened to you um and so that's probably a place to start is that i'm worried things have changed what's going on so that's a very open-ended but it's an empathic response you're trying to connect with him empathically instead of you know objectively you're failing <laughs> that's not gonna work very well so so i think we have to regulate ourselves um and then we want to um connect and relate and 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 then we're in a position hopefully where the child's also going to be calm and then we can start talking things through and, and and coming up with a plan a rationale to move to move forward but i but i think um in terms of of warning signs again the, the thing i would look at it most and it varies again uh with kids age but just irritability and emotionality right um and and that can be irritability in terms of being withdrawn it can be irritability in terms of being angry it can be irritability in terms of you know going zero to 60 over things that didn't use wait to i want to stop you for a second yeah. though because and i don't mean to interrupt you but haven't we learned so much about the teenage brain yeah. that some of these things you're describing are that that you know unformed frontal lobe that they have that we're not you know so some of those things irritability aren't they supposed to be irritable well they 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 certainly can be and i think that's where this idea of having uh emotional intelligence being regulated ourselves is an opportunity to try and get at that you're absolutely right that uh you know an adolescent we know and i probably talked to you about this many years ago is that when an adolescent sees a face that's shocked and surprised they actually tend to read it more as being angry <laughs> Right. So, oh, man, so how yeah. often do our, so so how often do our adolescents shock us all the time? And if they're interpreting that as that they're making us mad, already the emotionality is you know derailed, right? And so so um, yeah, there's no question that that to a certain extent that's part of the individuation of being an adolescent is to be sort of finding their own way. Um, but again, if we are regulating ourselves and not letting our emotions get in the way, and then being empathic. Um, then we're probably in a, in a better place to understand what's going on. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, I think it often is hard to know in terms of, but you can also, again, call the pediatrician and, and give them a heads up. Maybe you're coming in for a well visit and it's an opportunity to check. You know, pediatricians were doing a lot of screening using standardized screens to, to, to try and identify whether this really is anxiety, whether this really is depression. Um, and so that can help a little bit. And don't be surprised when the pediatricians ask you to leave the room. So we can have a private conversation with your child to find out what's going on. And I'm I remember that first one of those, yeah. boy. That that's a little unnerving as a parent. What? You want me to leave the room? 
You'd be surprised yes. how often we come up with things, though. And and one of the things that I, I would say happens frequently is just bullying and social drama. Um, and that they're afraid yeah, to mention so it. They're afraid to mention it to the parent. Um, and then when you bring it up, you know, then things get easier. You know, I think it was Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, that said, you know, anything that's human uh, is mentionable. And if it's mentionable, then it's tolerable, right? The idea being that if we can talk about it, then things get better. Oh, isn't that sweet? I love that. I'd love you to wrap this up with your best advice about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, trauma, mental health crisis, things that are going on with our children right now, whether it be acute and intense trauma or really things that may not be diagnosed, such as depression, anxiety disorders, any of these things, wrap it all up for parents with your very best advice. Yeah, that's really broad. But I think what I would what, I know. what, what I would say is it. what I would say is that it's not about the event and it doesn't define them, right? Um, um, I would say that uh, um, you know, try not to focus too much on on what the event is. Although, again, talking about it and disclosing it is the is the ability to to then begin repair, and that's the important thing. Is that kids are feeling unmoored, untethered because they feel like someone doesn't, someone doesn't get them. And and part of being an adolescent is this transition um, from relying on your parents to relying to peers. And so, if the peer group is not necessarily a nurturing one, that that can really throw them for a loop. So, I think I, I would say uh, look. For, uh, uh, for that emotional irritability, find ways to regulate yourself and try an empathic response as best you can. Because uh, when kids are struggling, it's usually because they're feeling trapped and no one gets them. Uh, and we want we don't want that for our kids. We want to make sure that all of our kids, no matter what they're going through, that we love them. We may not love their behaviors, <laughs> but we love them. And we're going to help them understand that their behavior is probably reflecting a strong emotion that they're not sure how to handle. And we can help them with that. We certainly can, and we can support them. And you've given us so much to think about and really great information. Dr. Garner, thank you again. You are an excellent, excellent guest. And parents, please share this show with your friends and family on your social channels because we're learning from the experts at the American Academy of Pediatrics together. They are the gold standard. And if you are like me and just absolutely crazy for your pediatrician, you know how important they are in the raising and the health and the happiness of our children. So please share this show far and wide. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. We want you to listen at RadioMD.com. So for Healthy Children, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and RadioMD, I'm Melanie Cole. Stay well.